You are, of course, looking at the most beautiful granddaughter in the world. That is Cecilia Grace, and you are witnessing one of her first forays into solid food, fettuccine Alfredo. And judging from the smile on her face at the end of the clip, I think she liked it. Cecilia was a great gift to us this year, and of course, um, she is the reason that our beautiful daughter-in-law, Deb, is celebrating her first Mother's Day as a mom. And in addition to that, I have my own wonderful mother-in-law who is visiting with us and joining my sweet mommy right behind her. And so today is going to be a very festive Mother's Day in the Toon household. And I trust it will be the same for you as you uh, give thanks for all of the moms in your life. We're taking a one-week break from our journey through the book of Philippians, and we're going to turn to a chapter in the earliest church history book. The book is called The Acts of the Apostles. It was written by Dr. Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we're going to turn to Acts chapter 16, where Luke tells a remarkable story about two remarkable women. A godly mom who offers up her son in the service of the gospel, and a godly businesswoman whose leadership helped to shape and launch the very first church in Europe. Two different women, two different kinds of ministries, and both of them what I want to call this morning church mothers. What do I mean by church mothers? I am, I'm speaking of those women who, in addition to our own moms, and speaking as one who has got a godly mother, I think my mom is a church mother, but in addition to our own moms, we're talking about those women who have influenced uh, our entire church family. If you read my blog this week, I talked about Gwen Bradley, one of the church mothers in Westminster Press in Yakima, where I grew up, and then in Bakersfield, some of the church mothers included Anita Walker and Shirley Burgum. I'm not going to even try to mention the church mothers in Chapel Hill because I would get in big trouble if I left any one of them out. But you know, you know who you are, and we know who you are. We know your influence and your devotion and your generosity. We know how your witness and your leadership have shaped this body that we call our sweetheart church. We know our church mothers, and today I want to thank God for them, and I want to encourage more of them to rise up. So for this Mother's Day, we were going to, we're going to look at two stories uh, from the early church mothers, and I, we're going to pick it up where Paul is on the second missionary journey. He's already planted a bunch of churches in modern-day Turkey, and now he's on a, a journey to check in on those churches. So it's his second missionary journey, we pick it up in Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Here's what Paul or what Luke wrote. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. It's another way of saying unbeliever. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. We have a saying on our staff, always keep your head on a swivel. And what we mean by that is always watch for talent. 
Wherever you see it, where, whenever you find it, try to grab onto it. Always watch for talent. Keep your head on a swivel. I think the Apostle Paul is one of the first ones who teach us, us that principle because he arrived in Lystra. And let me just pause to say Lystra was the town where Paul was almost stoned to death by a mob who were angry because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. You might say, what are you doing going back to Lystra? I'm not sure I would. It says something about how tough this hombre really was, this apostle Paul. He goes back right into Lystra because he wants to check on the state of the church there. And while he's there, he meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. His mom was a Jewish woman who became a believer in Jesus, and his father, we are told, was an unbeliever. In fact, he was apparently a strong enough unbeliever that he did not allow his son to be circumcised, which was the ritual that would have been followed in a, an observant Jewish home. Now, I want you to remember something about the culture at the time. This culture that Luke is writing about uh, was the culture in which wives were considered nothing more than chattel. They were a possession of the husband, a belonging of the husband in the same way as his donkey or his plow. And, frankly, the wives had as many rights as the donkey or the plow. They had none unless the husband gave them. Which makes this story all the more remarkable because Timothy's mom must have been a spiritual powerhouse. With no apparent support from her own husband, she imparted, nevertheless, to her son her vibrant faith. First as a, a Jewish woman, and then when she became a believer in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. Perhaps you can relate to this woman. Perhaps you were raised by such a woman. Maybe you are the one of whom I speak. Married to a man who does not share your spiritual convictions. Your marriage might be great otherwise, or as is often the case, it might be a real struggle but you are walking that very difficult path between honoring your husband and honoring the Lord Jesus. And it is not an easy road to walk. And it's even harder when you're trying to raise your children in a faith that your husband does not embrace. Well, if that's the case, then Eunice ought to be an inspiration to her. For that was her name, Eunice. You might say, well, where'd that come from? I didn't see her name mentioned in there. Well... Paul wrote a couple of letters to her young son, Timothy. We call them very cleverly, First and Second Timothy. And in Second Timothy, Paul wrote these words to his young protege. He said, I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers, night and day. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy's Christian faith was an inherited faith. You might say, wait a second, I thought that every single person has to personally commit themselves to follow Christ. And of course, I believe that to be so. But there are some of us who were raised in families, like my own family, covenant families, where we cannot remember the time that Jesus wasn't our Savior. 
We can't remember the moment when we raised our hand to receive Christ because all we ever knew as we were raised in a family that loved God, honored God, took us to church, prayed, and so forth, all we can ever remember is that Jesus loved us and was our Savior. And I'll bet some of you would raise your hand and say, that's my story. Mine was an inherited faith. That's my story. And it was Timothy's story as well. His grandmother Lois was a fervent believer. And Lois passed on her faith to her daughter Eunice, who passed on her faith in turn to her son Timothy. A faith that Paul describes as sincere, as real. Moms, I want to say to you that there is no higher calling in your life than to pass on your sincere, personal faith in Jesus to your children. No higher calling. And frankly, there's no greater balancing act than to do so when your husband does not share your faith or perhaps is even antagonistic toward it. But regardless, you need to find a way to be the number one champion for your children's Christian faith. Don't ever give up on that, ever. I sometimes hear moms who will say, what I actually think is a little, something a little bit foolish. They say, well, I'm not going to push my religion on my kids. I'll just let them grow up and decide what they believe on your own. Have you ever heard that said? You might have even said that before. Honestly, I hear it usually from women who aren't even quite sure what they believe. I'm not going to push my religion on my kids. I'll let them decide for their own. You would never do that on every other important thing in, your, in their lives. You would never say, I'm going to let my son grow up and decide what he wants to eat on his own. If he did, he would never touch a green vegetable in his life. You don't say, I'm going to let my daughter decide whether she wants to go to school on her own. No, you pile her in the car and you take her. You exert every bit of your maternal influence upon your children to help them eat well, study well, dress warmly, and be healthy. Well, moms, there is no more important decision that can be made by your children than the decision to follow Jesus. And I urge you to be like Lois, the grandmother, and like Eunice, the mother, to live your life faithfully and vibrantly, to worship and study and pray on your own, to experience the difference that a life wholly lived for Christ can make. And then, with every ounce of determination and ingenuity that you have, pass on that faith to your children through your prayers and through your readings and through your encouragement and through mops and Sunday school and middle school and the high school ministry. You get your kids there and you volunteer to be a part of that and pass on your faith to your kids and to their friends and to their parents. The challenges your children will face when they leave your home are daunting. I suppose, I suppose every generation thinks that. My kids are striking out in the most dangerous generation that ever lived. But I really think it is true. The challenges your kids face when they strike out on their own are overwhelming. Especially if they're heading off to university. No university or very few universities are a friend to the Christian faith. And so you better do everything you can in the moments that you have them to raise up and nurture your children in their Christian life before they leave home. <laughs> Eunice was a church mom. She was an example of a church mother. She started by passing on her own vibrant faith to her son. And unexpectedly, she became a part of Team Paul 
I mean, the greatest evangelistic outreach in the history of Christianity. She even ended up with an eternal shout-out in 2 Timothy. That's not too bad either. And if you are a mom who is called, your calling is to raise your kids in the Lord and pass on your vibrant faith to them as the most important inheritance that you can give them, I say bravo to you. Bravo to you. You have no idea how that child of yours whom you are raising up in simple ways might be used by the Lord to impact the kingdom of God. Later on in Acts chapter 16, Paul introduces us to another kind of church mother, and her name is Lydia. I want to pick it up in that same chapter, verse 12. We remained in Philippi some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia, the first church mother in Europe. She hailed from a town called Thyatira. I visited the remains of that town in modern-day Turkey. And we are told she was a businesswoman and an apparently prosperous one because she sold purple, specifically purple cloth. And you say, what, well, that, what big deal is that? Purple was reserved for the upper crust of society because it was extraordinarily expensive and time-producing, time-consuming to produce. The only purple dye that was available at that time was a dye, a tiny drop of dye that could be extracted from these tiny sea snails, some of which you see in the palm of that person's hands. It took thousands of those nails, of those snails, to produce enough dye to dye one garment. How would you like to have that job? You know, snail milky. I mean, it was, it was a long process. And that is why purple was worth literally its weight in silver, and it was, res- it was reserved for the wealthiest of royalty. Lydia was a seller of purple goods. She was a broker. And you might wonder, well, how is it that a woman ended up with such a prestigious and important business position such as that? We don't know. Perhaps she inherited the business from her deceased husband. But what we do know, she must have been extraordinarily competent to be able to hold her own in a business world that was utterly dominated by men. Lydia was likely the leader of this prayer gathering at the river outside of Philippi. We are told that she was a God worshiper. She didn't know, she wasn't Jewish, she didn't know of the Christian God, but she knew that the pagan gods of Rome were an empty, false uh, God, a group of gods, and, and she longed for something more. And so they gathered to pray to this God that they did not yet know. And one day Paul shows up at that riverside, and they welcomed him, and he shared with them the, the good news of the resurrected Christ. And we are told in a very sweet little verse there that the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she became a follower of Jesus. We often like to think about the fact that we decide to follow Jesus. The truth of it is that 
that God has been seeking us before we ever sought Him. That He opens our hearts before we're ever able to respond in faith. Lydia and her friends, they thought they were looking for God. All along, God was looking for them. And He did so in the person of Paul, whom He sent hundreds of miles to visit them. And there they heard that the resurrected Jesus was the long-awaited Savior who had been sent by God to rescue this world. And Lydia and her entire household, we are told, believed and were baptized. We don't know who was in her household. We don't know what comprised her household. But the whole bunch of them believed and were baptized. And not only that, we're told that her home became the base of operations for the first Presbyterian church of Philippi. And in fact, it seemed Paul had little choice in the matter. She insisted. Luke says of her that she prevailed upon us. I'll bet she did. Lydia sounds like a formidable woman. We know little of her personal life. We don't know whether she was married, whether she had children. We don't know. What we do know is that God captured the heart of this woman. And she became a force for the gospel of Jesus in Philippi and the church mother in the first Christian toehold in Europe. That's remarkable. She must have been an incredibly competent and generous and influential person to have this kind of impact. And I look forward to meeting her someday in heaven. But the fact is, I've already met her like here. Competent, generous, influential women who have made their mark on this church, who have made their mark on my life. As I said, I wouldn't name you because I don't want to embarrass you, but each of us has a woman or two or five or ten in our spiritual journey that we can point to who were just like this. Women who have shaped the church, women who have shaped the people of the church. As I said, I wrote about Gwen Bradley in Yakima in my blog this week. She was a childless spinster whose immense capability and influence ended up shaping the lives of hundreds of kids and their families. And I was one of those kids. I don't know if I would be where I am today were it not in part because of the influence of this church mother, Gwen Bradley. The church needs more Gwens. The church needs more Lydia's, more mature, godly women who are rising up to speak into the lives of others, and especially into the lives of younger women who long for that input. A friend of mine this week said to me, my wife longs for a spiritual mentor. She wants a Lydia. She needs a Lydia. Every young woman does, which by the way is why I consider MOPS to be such an essential discipleship ministry because it is introducing young, sometimes spiritually untethered women into a relationship with more mature, godly Lydias in their life and what a difference that can make. If you are a Lydia, you already know it because you are already at work. You know the network of relationships you have. You know the influence you bear. And you are hard at work bringing that influence to bear for the sake of Jesus. But I wonder how many Lydia's in training, or maybe Lydia's in waiting, there are out there. You are a competent person. You have capabilities and gifts, but you have not yet taken the bait. You have not yet heard the call of God to use your influence to bring your influence to bear on the church. And my hope is that one of the results of this message will be that it will cause some to say, you know what, it's time for me to step up. It's time for me to step up. 
So on this day, I want to honor our church mothers. Some of them are Eunice's, like my mom and like my wife. And they have been called to, a, to be a full-time mom. And I would say there's no more noble calling, and I thank God for the eternal impact that you have upon our children and on the children of our entire church for that ministry. And some of you, some of our church mothers are Lydia's, businesswomen, community leaders who have been called by God to use your influence and your gifts to serve the gospel of Jesus. And I thank God for you and for the influence that you will have upon our children and upon our families of this whole church. We bless the Lord for all of you. I want to close with this. One of the un, if, if you're new to our church, it will, uh, it will become pretty clear pretty quickly that one of our unwavering values as a church here at Chapel Hill is our conviction that the Bible taken as a whole elevates women equally with men in a call to leadership in the church. And that's why we call ourselves egalitarians. That's what that means. We believe men and women are called to equally to the roles of the church. And I know that there are some in the Christian world who disagree with us on this point, on biblical grounds. Well, may I just say we proudly hold this position on biblical grounds. We champion the role of women in our church on biblical grounds. We have three women pastors on our staff, the only church in our denomination to make that claim. We are the first in our denomination to plant a church with a woman as the lead pastor. And Pastor Megan is doing a spectacular job in Port Orchard. This June, our church will put up a candidate, Rosemary Lukens, who will be the first woman who has been the moderator of our denomination ever in the history of our denomination, out of our, denom- out of our church. And a little closer to home, I will just remind you that my own daughter, Rachel, is an an ordained EPC pastor, and she's rocking it in her ministry at Montreal College back in North Carolina. All of these women, some of them old, some of them younger, are, are part of this Chapel Hill sorority of church mothers. It is a legacy of which we are duly proud. We have a right to be proud of it. And I pray that God will continue to use this church to elevate and champion women as well as men to the, God, the highest calling that God might have for them in the work of the kingdom. Let us pray. Lord, there are many reasons I love being a pastor of this church, and this is one of them. The fact that this is a church that honors and lifts up women in significant leadership roles And we do it because we believe that's what the Bible demonstrates from the beginning to the end, that that there's a, a model of that kind of leadership that is revealed in Holy Scripture. So we think we're being faithful to you and to your Bible in that call, and I thank you for it. And on this day, Lord, we just honor these women that have made such a difference in our lives. I thank you for my mom, for a godly, prayerful woman who presented me to you in baptism when she was barely new in the Lord herself and yet grew in her faith and helped me to grow in mine to the point where I am this day. I thank you for my wife and for the the godly Eunice that she has been not only to our children but to countless young 
children and young women in this church. She is a church mother in this church, and I honor her and thank you for her. And God, I, I thank you for every woman who fills this role. I can't begin to list them, but I see them in my mind's eye. Those who, by their influence, their love, their devotion, their faithfulness to you, have played a part in shaping the children of this church, the families of this church, the nature of this church, such that we can be truly the sweetheart church that I know and love and I believe you love as well. So God, we thank you for women raised to these roles of leadership. We pray your blessing upon them and we pray that you would generate another generation of church mothers who will take their place in this great pantheon of faith. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.